Hear from the word of the Lord, the Old Testament book of Numbers, verses, chapter 21, verses 4 through 5. From Mount Hor, the Israelites set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. But the people became impatient on the way. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food nor water, and we detest this miserable food. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Thank you for that reading, Dr. Longbonds. And for those of you here in the sanctuary and for those of you at home, it is so very good to be with you. Will you please join with me in prayer? God, who is always leading us, whether we see it or not, may we have the courage and sight to see and to listen to the places you would have us to go. Guide our words, guard our path, and now, today, may these words and the meditations of all our hearts bring honor and glory to you. It's in Christ that we pray always in thanksgiving. Amen. When we look back, life used to be better. Even food tasted better before all of this started. There was more variety and and somehow more flavor, or maybe appetites have just changed. One thing is certain. This time of waiting has changed almost everyone. People are arguing more, listening less, complaining, and just generally looking for someone, anyone really, to share and shoulder the laundry list of growing frustrations. Why is it taking so long? What's the delay? How much longer will we be holed up here How close are we to really seeing all of these grand promises playing out? Will things actually get better in my lifetime? Sometimes it feels like life is being wasted and waiting for this new normal to come into being. And at a time like this one, when strong leadership matters, it's only natural to blame those who see things differently. It's so easy to question whether those in charge really understand the frustrations and the anxieties that just didn't exist before this seemingly unending season of waiting all began. Bodies are aching. The daily rhythms and habits have gone on for too long. For some, it's resulted in poor posture. There are more stooped stances and slumped shoulders than there used to be. There are new aches all of the time. And people have sore feet if there's pain going right down to the bone. And more than this, one can only be duped for so long by delayed optimism. There is now erosion by exhaustion and fatigue 
A longing for a swift and timely end to this tirelessness has been met with disappointment and setback time and again. It's gone on for far too long. We keep getting word that we're on the right path, but how long is this path and how many more steps will there be before the end is actually in sight? Yes. These are the kinds of questions and murmuring musings that were rattling in the heads and out of the mouths of those trekking through the wilderness in Numbers 21. You see, the people of God have been in the desert for so long that what one scholar estimates to be 38 years, as years gathered and decades piled on, the miraculous becomes, well, ordinary. What was once exciting had become bland and tasteless. Being led by a divine fire at night and a cloud by day were no longer worth looking up to see. In our passage today, we read that bread falling from the sky had become so expected that Israel rejected it as even being food at all. There is a bit of tragic humor in our text. There is no food, the people say, even as they are eating the very food that God provided for them. It's the reverse of the tale of the little red hen. The people did not plant or harvest, make or bake, and yet they get to take and eat. But the people want something different than what God is supplying. One translation puts it this way, our throats loathe the despicable food. You see, they're fed up with what God is feeding them. God is literally sustaining them, but the people don't want any of it anymore. In the words of Robert Alter, they denigrate the divine gift. Recently, my son asked me how a mirage works. I told him that sometimes exhaustion, hunger, and despair can trick your brain into seeing something that isn't really there. It's an optical illusion. A glare on the horizon is imagined to be something that it's not. For Israel, their dismay and disenchantment time and again leads them to a disillusioned place. As the years have worn on, Israel begins recalling how they used to sit around food pots back in Egypt, but they forgot the details, and the Pharaoh was in the details that they left out. You see, they had forgotten about how their backs used to bleed. They'd forgotten about what it was like to live under the flag of Pharaoh. They'd forgotten about their scars and stripes, even though many still carried the marks of Egypt on their bodies. They'd forgotten how their labor was heavy and oppressive, and they'd forgotten how marginalized and enslaved they were back in Egypt. Our minds can do this either out of biological necessity or through the failure of our memory in order to survive trauma, we can, and often do, deceive ourselves. 
We block out the pains of the past, pretending things weren't as bad as they really were. In the words of Tina Franklin, a neuroscientist at Georgia Tech, our brains are very good at learning different things and forgetting the things that are not a priority. And so for Israel in the wilderness, they seemingly forget and distort their past. They weeded out all of those memories that didn't support their reimagined and bogus past. Call it what you will, a foolishness, amnesia, or stubbornness. Somehow, Israel in the desert begins idealizing Egypt. Their angry appetites led them. Their delayed expectations fed frustration. Our passage reads, the people became impatient on the way. Wilderness winds are carrying complaints. Mutiny is taking root in the desert. Somewhere along the way, the words morphed from the question of, are we there yet, to will we ever get there at all? And then, worse still, what if we had never left at all? Literary critic and essayist George Steiner once like this in his book, Real Presences, a book that addresses in part how language creates, quote, the conjunction if can alter, recompose, put in radical doubt, even negate the universe as we choose to perceive it, end quote. Israel seems to be doing just this. They're dealing in the currency of radical doubt, wondering what life had been like if they'd never left or if they'd gone their own way instead of God's way. Jewish commentator Jacob Milgram observed that Israel is here on the verge of entering into the promised land. Again, they're 38 years into their 40-year journey precisely when the exodus is almost over, the people turn their backs on both Moses and God. Recently, a good friend suggested that I watch the miniseries based on the Chernobyl power plant's tragic explosion. Now, I'm not very far into it, but the opening lines gripped me. Quote, What is the cost of lies? It's not that we'll mistake them for the truth. The real danger is that if we hear enough lies, then we no longer recognize the truth at all. What can we do then? What else is left but to abandon even the hope of truth and content ourselves instead with stories? In these stories, it doesn't matter who the heroes are. All we want to know is who is to blame, end quote. Uh, These words about Chernobyl could just as easily be said about Israel making their way through the wilderness. They've grown tired of God's good truth and the promising future that awaits them, and so they start abandoning hope in their speech, and they start listening to foolish and false narratives. They start looking for someone to blame and After all, one of the best ways to bring people together is to find a common enemy. 
a villain to name and to point your finger at and perhaps even to crucify. What's so interesting about the account from Numbers is that it's slightly different from the report we find in Exodus 17. In the Exodus version, we read, the people complained against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and livestock with thirst? In Exodus, Moses alone is the one being blamed, but in Numbers, it's not just Moses, it's God too. Here in Numbers, we read, the people spoke against God and against Moses. Interestingly, because of the amount of time spent in the wilderness, the next generation, those born in the wilderness, are now reminiscing for an Egypt they'd never known and experienced firsthand. A new generation, those born in the desert, starts talking fondly about Egypt, not because of their personal memory, but because of the misguided stories the previous generation passed on to them. In other words, corrupted memories are corrupting the dreams of the youth. This is all a lesson here in the power of influence that is not to be taken lightly during a season of malcontent. What was needed in the desert were mature voices who could give voice to the fact that Israel had cried out to God to deliver them from their back-breaking misery and enslavement. And God not only listened, but God also acted. God makes a mockery out of Pharaoh. God parted the sea, fed the people, and led them even still. This was not the time for Israel to grumble and complain. Not now. Not when the promises of God were on the edge of coming into the sight. The glaring light in the distance was no mirage. This was the time to announce, look how close we are to tasting the deliverance of God. This was the time to say, see how God has heard our prayers, how God saw our pain and suffering, and how God is leading us toward goodness and freedom Today's passage allows us to see Israel's wilderness journey through a tiny window. From where we stand and look, we might be quick to say, the wilderness of the past just isn't the wilderness of the present. And yet, for the church today, Lent is the season in the calendar when we prepare to encounter the hope and blinding light of Easter morning. We are a people journeying together through our modern-day deserts in order to find meaning in the memory of Jesus. But here's the great danger of walking through every desert. We can grow impatient on the way. I hope you've listened both carefully and imaginatively so far. And if you've done this, you've realized I haven't actually addressed our current circumstances. Everything so far has been about the plight of the people of God so long ago who became infatuated with false, even infuriated with the God who was leading them towards something good. I haven't talked about our impatience and fatigue. 
I haven't mentioned the grumbling and murmuring that are everywhere my ears seem to go these days. I haven't brought up the stories and leaders you might be tempted to believe or criticize. I actually don't think I need to spend much time explaining what is so patently obvious. I don't need to spell out for many of you that we presently find ourselves in a strange wilderness of sorts. I was gripped this past week by an article by Ellen Cushing from The Atlantic titled, Late Stage Pandemic is Messing with Your Brain. In this article, Cushing questions, what time do parties end? How tall is my boss? Are babies heavy? Does my dentist have a mustache? On what street was the good sandwich place near work, the one that toasted its bread? How much does a movie popcorn cost? What do people talk about when they don't have a global disaster to talk about all the time? You have to wear high heels the whole night. She concludes this section by saying, it's more baffling than distressing most of the time. Everywhere I turn, I, the fog of forgetting has crept in, end quote. My friends, if the present feels like a wilderness, or if the fatigue and loneliness are taking their terrible toll, I encourage you to take a look past the darkness, to watch for how God's goodness and light are still at work, leading us through the shadow-filled valley and the worry-laden wilderness. Now is the time to be honest about this season of Lent. Sometimes not saying Alleluia isn't only a matter of restraint. Sometimes it's because we know a fatigue that subtly steals our joy and our cause for celebration. But know this, it won't be Lent forever. Even if it feels like it, this wilderness we're in will not last. We are so close to Easter. We are so close to remembering the resurrection life of Christ that unites, sustains, and supplies us with undying hope. Now is not the time to be led by impatience. Now is not the time to abandon the hope of truth. Now is not the time to speak in ways that devour and divide. I've often been struck by these lines from Maya Angelou, quote, Words are things. They get on the walls. They get in your wallpaper. They get in your rugs, in your upholstery, and your clothes, and finally into you, end quote. And so, with intense practicality and with the lessons of the wilderness in view, let's stop complaining. Let's stop grumbling. Let's stop murmuring and muttering under our breath. Let's stop hurling criticisms and complaints toward God and neighbor. Tearing others down won't do anything to build us up. Today's sermon text reminds us for better or worse, that words planted in the desert still bloom. There's hope in the goodness that's coming, but there's also hope in the goodness right in front of you. 
The simple truth is that if you spend your days complaining, you'll lose sight of both. Arm in arm, let's commit to walking together with faith, hope, and love.